0: Welcome to The Dealmaker Show, the number one place for entrepreneurs and dealmakers to learn about leveraging and generating status, frame control, and narrative power to close big deals. Here is your host, investment banker, dealmaking expert, and best-selling author of Pitch Anything and Flip the Script, Mr. Oren Claff.
1: Hey, guys. Welcome. This is Oren Claff. You're on The Dealmaker Show And I want to thank you for being patient as we got the technology worked out. We're getting things started right here. I have a fantastic guest today. Some of you who are interested in both sales and psychology will be very familiar with the individual that I'm about to put on screen. I'd like to introduce today, it's my pleasure to host on the DealMaker Show, Dan Ariely. Dan, welcome. (laughs) Jonah. Jonah Berger. Welcome to the show. Do you do you know Dan? I do know Dan, yes. Okay, yeah. So Dan's Dan's a very nice, uh, very nice guy. We'll talk about him later today. I was looking at your book, The Catalyst, which just came out. This is it. Um, and I have a bunch of questions about this. This is your most recent book, 2020. I just want to point out that um the color of this book, Mm. uh, and this is also yellow. also yellow, not this is not a legal accusation of any kind, <laughs> but it is just pointing, merely pointing out the facts of the case that I'm making to the Supreme Court about this situation. All right yeah. hey, jonah welcome so so um you're a psychologist uh, is is it your cognitive psychologist? Is that the technical definition of uh, your- i
0: would I would say I'm a social psychologist, but I'm a marketing professor also, so I said it, it's certainly in between the two,
1: yeah. And so why are you writing books um, about this subject? Like what, and uh, I've, uh, it's not an accusation, but what drives you to write the books?
0: Yeah, so uh, I used to be just an academic. Uh, so, uh, used to only do research, only do teaching, um, uh, and in 2013, something happened that changed my life a little bit. Um, uh, I'd been doing a bunch of research on word of mouth. I thought it would be interesting to try to write a book, uh, about that research. Uh, and so I came out with a book called Contagious, um, yeah. and that book changed my life a bit. Um, so I started getting calls from, uh, you know, all sorts of fortune 500 companies from Google and Apple and Nike to small startups, um, uh, and everybody in between. Uh, and so since then I've basically spent half my time. Uh, doing the research and teaching that professors often do, uh, and the other half doing speaking and consulting, helping companies and organizations uh, with with their challenges. Um, And, you know, a few years ago, I realized that many of the challenges had something in common, which is that everyone had something they wanted to change. Right? So the folks in marketing or sales, they wanted to change a customer or a client's mind. Leaders wanted to change organizations. Uh, employees wanted to change their boss's mind. Uh, startups wanted to change industries. Nonprofits wanted to change the world. Everyone had the same goal, but they were really having trouble getting traction. And I realized that the tools that were out there sort of weren't doing it. Everyone was pushing and, and the people they wanted to change were pushing back. And so I started wondering if there was a better way to change minds and, and drive action. And, and that really started the journey uh, that ended up with with the book, The Catalyst.
1: Yeah. So no, thank you for pointing out. I think we covered a lot of the similar, I mean, reactants is a huge topic. Uh, and I think every, everybody in sales from CEOs, you know, when they want to get something, uh, you know, they go about it in a very straightforward way and try and use a force of will, uh, use the money relationships, control, uh, sort of, uh, the dominance hierarchy, whatever they can impose their will to get what they want promoted and they sell quite aggressively and the more you push things just human reactance uh puts up the defenses because it starts to take away the autonomy of an individual like if you go into evolutionary psychology what what caused a, autonomy to be so critical to our just fundamental core well-being why do we protect autonomy more than you know, almost anything else, uh, in our lives.
0: Yeah. I mean, we want to feel like we have freedom and, and we're in control. We want to feel like we're in the driver's seat, right? I'm making my own choices. I'm making my own decisions. I'm the one in, in the driver's seat. But when someone else, uh, tries to tell us to do something, uh, encourage us to do something, asks us to do something, pushes us to do something, we push back. Right? We have this ingrained anti-persuasion radar that's sort of like a missile defense system that goes off and says, wait, oh, there's an incoming projectile. Someone's trying to convince us. Let's avoid it. Let's ignore it. Let's do something to avoid being persuaded. Um, uh, even counter-argue, right? Push back and think about all the reasons why what someone's suggesting is wrong or or won't work. A- as persuaders, it's clear why we think pushing is a good idea, right? It's the f- We think it's the fastest way to get what we want. If we just tell someone what we want, that would be great that assumes that if we tell them, they'll do it, right? Um, If if they do it, then the fastest way is just to tell them. But the problem is that's often not the fastest way. It's often a lot slower of a way because when we tell them, they push back. They dig in their heels. They think about all the reasons they don't want to do it. And so it, it actually leads us in the opposite direction of where we're hoping to go.
1: Right, so we're sort of building Chinese thumbscrews here or arguments inside of arguments because if you think back, you know, 150,000 years ago or 225,000 years ago or whatever, uh, you know, when when, uh, evolutionary psychology really started becoming, uh, you know, part of the uh, psychology, started becoming part of the biology of humans. And we, what caused us, you know, what is in the, evolution in the DNA that caused us to protect our autonomy so uh proactively right why do we not why do we not want to give that and and so uh and why as persuaders don't we recognize that people want their autonomy right so at, in in marketing and sales tax for the last 50 years the basic premise has been tie people down to yeses the more yeses you can get somebody to say the more likely they are to give you the the so uh jonah you uh you said you'd be interested in a red car that's your favorite color is that right yeah i love yeah. red. yeah you love red and uh so red is very hard to get wouldn't you agree
0: i did say it is hard to get yep i agree yeah
1: if and if i could get you one in red uh wouldn't you agree that that's what you said you wanted
0: yeah, uh, it, is, it is. I love red. I do. Right.
1: Uh, and so if I can get one in red, I can talk to my manager. Uh, you know, we don't have one, but there's one in another lot. If we make this special effort to get one over here, get the one you said, you said the one that you wanted, the one that you could afford. We talked about the pricing. the one you said your wife loved in. Then do we have a deal for the one in red, right? Oh, so 50 years. Definitely. Yeah. hundred percent. And by the way, um, someone get Jonah's credit card. We just sold him a car. Thank you. <laughs> That's how it's done folks. Uh, but, Why for 50, not 50, we're in 2021, for 70 years, every single Tom Hopkins, Zig Ziglar, Tony Robbins, you know, everybody down the road has said, tie people down, back up in the corner, make them say yeses, you know, tie down those yeses and use these logical circuits to make people finally say yes and then hold them accountable for that yes, jam the paperwork in front of them, press hard, Mr. Jones, Fifth copies errors. yours. You own this motherfucker. So, so, but, but it, it, um, if, if it's true, which I believe it is that reactance is so powerful that we are, um, uh, we are so defensive of our, of our autonomy. Why did the entire sales industrial complex build its entire reputation in marketing and sales on taking people's autonomy away. How did we get into that Chinese screw? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there are, there are a couple of reasons. First, we, we're focused on what we want.
0: right? I mean, we're focused on the outcome we want to achieve. I want to sell more cars. I want to sell more of this. I want to change this person's mind. I want to do this thing. We spend a lot of time thinking about we want what we want. We don't spend as much time understanding the person we're trying to change and what's in the way. Right. We spend a lot of time saying, well, what could I do to get this person to change rather than saying, well, why hasn't this person changed uh, already? And so we really need to be a lot more customer focused, whether that customer is an actual customer or whether that customer is a boss, a colleague, an employee, any anyone at all. Who is that person that we're trying to change and what are the barriers or obstacles that are getting in, in the way? Right. Often we think it's information. We say, well, oh, if I just gave someone more information, they would come around. If I just told them why they should do what I want them to do, they will change. Rarely is information the barrier we think it is. More often the barrier is, well, it's not their idea, it's my idea. More often, the barrier is it's too far away from where they are at the moment. Uh, more often, the barrier is, well, it's very different from what they're doing now, and what they're doing now feels safe, and they don't want to do something completely different. And so there are all these barriers that are not about information, are about something else. And if we don't understand those barriers, if we don't understand the obstacles, it's going to be really hard to, to get people to change.
1: So is it is it, uh, right, so in, in the companies that I work with, you know, basically, they open up the presentations with facts and percentages and statistics and things to build their case uh and and so well, do they truly right so when you have a 50-year-old ceo who's been in business for 30 years right he cannot truly believe from having thousands of experiences of going to pitch and sell and trying to get things done that facts and information change people's minds and sell stuff yet and I have a thesis on this and we'll see if we think about the same. Why, why is it groundhog day? Why, when they go build a presentation, we're the number one company. These are our logos, you know, 88% of customers choose us over the next, you, you know, uh, next option. um, over the last 5 years we've had uh, you know 2000 accounts we represent uh, uh 60% of the fortune 500 238 of the fortune 500 use us and this is the starting point if they know facts don't persuade these are not emotional arguments like you could take every single one of those guys who are giving that presentation and say right do facts persuade or is emotion more persuasive oh emotion you got to tell stories but then they turn to the facts. What, what are you seeing in the boardroom? Like, why, even though people know today what's right, they still default to what's wrong in just the basics of business psychology?
0: Yeah, I mean, there are a couple challenges, right? First, uh, facts feel valuable. They feel useful. They feel persuasive. Uh, Well, how am I going to tell someone what to do if I don't have any ammunition uh, behind me? But if I have numbers I can point to, numbers feel safe, feel like a foundation uh, that makes our argument more, more valuable. But I would even say with emotional stories, and by the way, I'm a big believer in emotional stories. I think emotional stories can be very valuable, but even emotional stories can still be pushing right? Emotional stories can still be, well, let me tell you why you should use this. And I'm going to give you an emotional story about why you should use this rather than saying, well, hold on. Why aren't you using this at the moment, right? Why aren't you doing this already? What are the things that are, is, is it information? Is it, is it something else? I was working with a, a client a few years ago that they, um, Uh, They basically make uh, software that helps companies find machine parts. So imagine you have a uh, a whole bunch of John Deere backhoes, or you have a whole bunch of other sorts of machinery. Every once in a while, they go down. You need to find parts. They help you find uh, those parts and and do it quickly. Um, And they were trying to tell people all the reasons why they should buy from them. And we stepped back and we said, well, hey, let's create the customer journey from uh, awareness all the way through, and let's think about what the barriers are. So some people are not aware that you exist. That's clearly a barrier, right? They've never heard of you. Um, Some people are aware you exist, but don't understand what the value proposition is. Some people understand the value proposition, but don't think they have the problem. Other people think they have the problem, but think it's too expensive. Other people don't think it's too expensive. They're worried it won't integrate with their existing uh, programs. And so moving through there, we're able to say, well, what are the different barriers that are getting in the way? And notice the solutions are very different depending on what the barriers are. If it's information, let me list all the information. But hold on, if it's price or if it it won't integrate with my existing systems, those are two very different barriers. If it's price, maybe we need an introductory offer. If it won't integrate with the existing systems, maybe it's, well, let's raise our price actually and offer white glove service where we come in and do the integration for you. The more we understand about the people, whether those people are individuals or companies that we're trying to change, the more effective we can be. You know, if you go into a doctor's office, doctor doesn't start by saying, hey, let me put a cast on your leg doctor starts by saying, well, wait, tell me about the problem. And only once they've understood the problem, do they prescribe a solution? And but
1: I, think- I think, I think now we're in the Dan, what I call the Dan Ariely conundrum. Uh, damn it. You said 17 things I loved and two things I hated. And I'm trying in my tiny dinosaur brain to collect all that. Oh, so, so what I really loved, and I think we have to, you know, record for all history is for those of you guys out there, facts, it, it, it's, not that the facts are useless or you shouldn't start with facts. And what I love what Jonah said is facts are used to take down specific barriers. So starting with facts, we're number one, uh, we, uh, you know, like I work with semantic, right. Um, you know, nice little $18 billion company. And well, actually they split into semantic and Veritas. So I think they're down to 10 billion, but anyway, uh, they start their presentation out. Hey, we work, with 498 of the fortune 500. And we may actually work with all of the fortune 500, but we just can't find those other two on whatever updated list the fortune 500 is. So that's the start of their presentation. Uh, and, and I always, um, I, didn't, I didn't agree with them starting out like that because to your point, nobody is doubting that semantic is used by almost everyone, right? That's actually like a reduction in what people believe. People believe like semantic is backup software is used by, um, f- you know, 50,000 of the fortune 51,000. Like everybody has, there's a, who else are you using? Yeah. Oh, hang on a second. Um, Hey Matthew, would you be willing to turn off the AC? Because I can't hear myself think and that's not good. I can barely think without not being able to think Matthew. Okay. Thanks. Hey, um, so, um, uh, so facts, I think and information are used to tear down barriers uh, that are known to exist. And if you're just, you're, you're just like taking pot shots at, at sticking points, when you lead, I love this. Like when you, because we, we just dissuade people from starting out presentations with statistics, facts and information because it's not emotional. doesn't, we don't find it persuades and everything like that. But I think uh, a nuance that you've added is that you're just taking pot shots you know,
0: yeah. At, I mean, what's at, the problem, at, right? As, yeah, you, as you sort of alluded to there, if the problem is, hey, they don't believe that companies use you, well, then that's a great fact. But if that's not the problem, then it's not the right solution, right? In, in some sense, before you figure out what the right solution is, you need to understand the problem. You got to start with the root. I, you know, if, if, you ever, if you have a yard and you, you garden it all and you see weeds, right? The easiest thing is just to pull the top off the weed. That's the fastest. Then the weed grows back, Right? If you don't find the root, if you don't grab the weed from the bottom, it's just going to come back. You've got to figure out what that underlying issue really is um, and address it specifically.
1: Okay. So, so now I'm excited because I feel like I have uh, a rat in a cage because it's fair, because all the academics, you know, we're, uh, um, you know, it's backwards. You guys are in the ivory tower and we're all the experimental uh the civilians out here my dad was a, my dad was a college professor he was a professor of sociology at oh. the University, of Del- uh, University of Delaware University of Delaware University of Illinois cool. University of Wisconsin uh, uh and um he was a tenured professor at uh, University of Delaware so i grew up with a sociologist and my mom's a clinical psychologist so i lived my life you know, as an experimental, uh, uh, a, a free, uh, unregulated experimental rat for any sociological or clinical psychology experiment that they could dream up uh, in wanting to do their master's thesis. So, so, uh, but all of us civilians and college students, everybody out here, we're the rats in the academics' cage. So I feel like we get to turn around and put the academic in the cage for a few minutes. Here's. <laughs> the Dan Ariely conundrum Dan Ariely takes 12 college students locks them in a room gives eight of them a coffee cup with uh, the logo of the university printed on it gives four of them a coffee cup and tells them to draw their own picture on it and then offers to buy the fucking coffee cup back and Uh, The ones that drew a picture on it won't sell it for less than $3 and 27 cents. And the one that just had the stock logo of the university and all they did was have a cup of coffee are willing to sell it for $2 and 97 cents. And therefore the conclusion is whatever the conclusion is. Okay. That's fine. Now I, Orrin Claff have to go meet with billionaire motherfucker who gives me five minutes to come in and, um, uh, you, you know, pitch my deal, explain why I need $45 million in a recapitalization financing to grow our company from 22 million to 72 million, and then exit at a $440 million uh, price within 18 months, giving him a 19% return, which is beating the current market uh, standard return of 8% and a reduced risk profile. And I walk in that room and all of a sudden I go, you know what, what was a coffee cup do? Who buys what coffee cup again? So, so translating the academia to the high stakes environments that a lot of us find ourselves in is just—it uh, feels like the gap is too wide. Uh, and and so for for Rialli, you know, it was mainly in academia, uh, you know, and and uh, you know, publishing the reaction of white anglicized, wealthy, um, uh, educated, you know, all came from either modern day or, uh, you know, uh, some either prep school or solid public prep school. It's a very, you've heard this argument before, right? Uh, I'm
0: not exactly sure where it's going, but I look forward to, I look forward to hearing about it.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. This, this argument has to actually become an argument is what you're saying. So, so the academic, um, research in social psychology, which is sort of used in a lot of the books, um, is, is based on the reaction of college students, you know, or individuals in closed environments. And then it's very hard to, it's very hard to translate a lot of this stuff to actual high stakes, deal-making negotiation and sales interactions. Uh, and, and so what's, you know, what have you found because you have a foot on both sides of it, right? How do you get the stuff from the lab? to translate into the real world environment
0: yeah i mean i i think there are a couple of things and first you know you're, you're very right that um, some effects, uh, some ideas some principles have more weight behind them than than others right some things have been looked at with 20 people and you know one school and others have been looked at, at millions of people across uh places um uh you know we've done work with you know six million car sales for example or you know uh, thousands of pieces of online content or tens of thousands of brands so I, I definitely hear the, the point that sometimes uh, academic research can seem narrow among a specific set of people. I think the opportunity is, is really large right? Well, Well. and I, I work with a lot of companies. I was actually um, uh, on a, a chat before this with a, a bunch of startup founders. And particularly when I talk to B2B firms, everybody says, oh, but my situation is different. You know, this point you're talking about, your example is not the exact same as my example. And so it, it doesn't apply. And I think there's a lot of opportunity. You know, has, has somebody studied exactly the situation you're in? No, because every situation is going to be somewhat unique. Right. Every billionaire you talk to, every person you're trying to convince, every situation is going to be a little bit unique. But what's nice about academic research is by looking across enough situations, we can generalize um, and we can learn some things that people can can apply. I think uh, you know, a, a nice way to think about it is think about baseball. Right? Does anyone hit a thousand? Nobody hits a thousand, right? You know, best case someone hits, I don't know, 330 or 340 or something like best that. Best case.
1: Like best, best, best case 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah. yeah. But do
0: people understand the science of hitting? Do they hit better? Yes. They don't hit a home run every time. Everything they do doesn't turn to gold, but they do better things more often. And so that's the goal, right? Nobody can tell you how to become perfect at anything by just reading one book. You know, you got to learn it. You got to think about it. You got to read it. You got to apply it. But by understanding science, you can do a lot better.
1: So I, I like this baseball example, right? Um, as compared to psychology, social psychology, cognitive psychology, which is really interesting to me, like, be, because in, in baseball, for example, there are many new things still being discovered, right? About yeah. nutrition, uh, um, uh, just the, uh, the technology, you know, being able to track the swing, Right. Um, you know, sort of brain, mind, brain, machine interfaces, you know, all kinds of things are, op- are improving the athletes. Right. Uh, and so there continues to be statistical insights as the computers get better, as the A.I. get better, the, the computers continue to be an excellent interface. Um, for improving the athletes, nutrition, uh, drugs, you know, are much better than with just Sustanon or Winstral V or Di- Russian Dianabol, you know, we're, the, we're like, the, the, you know, these these sledgehammer steroids of choice, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And now the drugs are much more bespoke. Uh, so the drugs are good. So all kinds of new discoveries. But in in psychology, it feels like, is there anything new to discover? Or are we all just kind of like stirring the pot of soup from a stone, right? Uh, you know, it's all the same ingredients, and uh, you know we're either putting more salt or more pepper, and calling it a different form yeah. of psychology. Is there is there anything new? You know, because human uh, there, there's the the genetic change in humans is so slow, and we're so smart, and we've researched so much psychology. It just doesn't feel like anything new there's anything new to come out of human psychology, but we, I, you know, I, I'm not a psychologist, so, you know, and I'm not in an academic institution. I just love to hear from you. Like, is there, has everything about psychology that can be discovered <laughs> been discovered?
0: Uh, you know, uh, people haven't necessarily changed. But the situations we find ourselves in have have changed, right? So, you know, there's some, in a different domain, great work on birth order, right? Parents are the same, so shouldn't kids be the same? They Biologically, in some sense, they're similar, but they're born into very different situations. The first kid is born, there's no other kid around. The second kid is born into a completely different situation. Their genetics may be very similar, but the situation is quite different. Um, You know, we deal with a lot of things today that we've never dealt with before. We negotiate uh, online. We talk to Alexa and get recommendations. Um, We can parse things and engage in situations that we've never been able to before. A lot of uh, my recent research is actually on automated text analysis or natural language processing, basically, how we learn things from the language that people share and the language that impacts folks, right? So, you know, we look at hundreds of customer service calls um, and look at the words that agents use and the paralanguage, the pauses and the linguistic features they use to look at language features that shape customer satisfaction. We look at you know tens of thousands of written articles online and look at whether people read them or not or how much they read. And we can say, well, what ways of writing content makes it more engaging, makes people more likely to read it? We can look at song lyrics and understand why songs succeed. We can look at movie scripts and understand why movies are successful. Um, you know, Are the underlying psychological reasons for why these things work completely different than anything anyone's ever shown? Some are. Some aren't, right? Some are more similar to things we already know. But we uncover things that we could have never studied before because new technologies change human behavior and they change the things we can discover. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity out there to learn a lot of interesting things. Um, Not every academic paper is the most exciting thing you've ever read. And, you know, academics play like any other discipline. They play a little bit of inside baseball. You know, uh, we tend to talk to one another rather than writing in ways that other people can understand. But that's why great books that bring academic insights to life can be so powerful. They take empirical generalizations, things that we know to be true, not just because they're someone's opinion, but things that data show us to be true, and they express it in a way and make it accessible in a way that a broad audience can understand and and use. And that's why I love reading, you know, great uh, books that are out there that teach me things. And, um, you know, that's the hope when, when we write books like these as well as they can help people apply things we we know to be true
1: yeah no, very well said I I remember I think I was 10 or 11 and I had just learned that my dad had written some books you know I was so excited because uh you know I was an avid reader I have a seven-year-old he loves reading as well and so uh you know I went in his study and took one of his books and started reading I'm like what the fuck is like this isn't a book this is completely unread I was so excited my dad writes books but yeah. they're not actually books. You know, they're physical, uh, yeah, quantitative. They're books for different audiences. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and, and you know, no, and that's, right, I think that's an audience what... of an audience of uh, fifteen people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, and, and not, you know, uh, academic books can sometimes be written for a narrow audience. I think the ones that are written for a broad audience can be yeah. can be really powerful. I mean, what's yeah. great, you know, having worked at companies and having worked for companies, I think there's a tendency to uh, solve problems that are on the table and not think about broader principles. We have, you know, so many things we've got to do tomorrow. We've just got to figure out how this should look or what we should say or what we should do. What's nice about academia is we can step back, we can generalize across situations, uh, but we certainly have to express those things in a way that can be both understandable and usable
1: so interesting and i think you just in the subject before you touched on one of my uh favorite subjects is as this ai and machine learning starts to turn on and it has the now the ability uh you know even we use a system when we want to write a blog post right it will suggest a lot of the language and then we can modify it but how fast and how is it moving and how close are we to really the content that we're getting is largely provided for us, you know, by the machine because it has intuited what we're interested in. And so how close are we? And if we get too close, are we losing art forms along the way?
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, as someone who's studied why movies become successful and songs become successful and, uh, know people who look at why paintings are more valued or more esteemed than others. Um, I think under art can be a lot of science. Right? And the, the artist may be creative. The artist may be picking a, a point in a multidimensional space that uh, speaks to them. But why that thing resonates with a lot of people is not random or luck or, or chance, right? There's often a science behind it. It doesn't mean there's one ideal point. It doesn't mean there's one painting that's great for everybody or one song that's good for everyone. But just like the baseball analogy, if we understand what makes hitting work, we can be better hitters. If we understand what people resonates with people, we can design songs and books and movies and uh, paintings and other experiences that people will enjoy more. I think there's also a difference between using things like natural language processing and AI and machine learning to understand behavior uh, and predict behavior versus create content, Right, um, uh, we are we are far from the place where I think that um, uh, machines can create amazing content that will work well for everybody. Uh, but machines can also avoid some of uh, human biases. Uh, they also can have biases baked in, of course, but, but they can avoid some of those. I think what's really exciting is it can allow us to analyze things we've never been able to analyze before. So to give you an example, uh, you know, we did a project recently. People often say, oh, you know, this movie, the plot moves really quickly, or it covers a lot of ground, or, you know, uh, this book, um, uh, you know, went in circles. That's a neat That's a neat phrase, went in circles. Can we measure that? Can we actually see whether books go in circles? Can we see whether plot moves quickly? Can we see whether things cover a lot of ground? And can we see whether things that do that are more successful? And so using some of these tools, whether it's dictionaries or topic modeling or machine learning, all sorts of different things, we can really extract insights that would never have been possible before.
1: So... Um, because you're so deep in this subject, are we sort of going to lose, uh, the you know Bob Marley and yes, and you know the early Rolling Stones and things that you know were born out of chaos and Brownian motion and and pain and suffering and strife, and they haven't been fed through you know the a predictive you know at at a studio. <sighs> Um, uh, you know, predictive analysis of how, you know, what cohort between 20 and 25 will oh, yeah. appreciate this beat of music? And, yeah. and so are we, are we losing uh, access generationally to Bob Marley and yes?
0: You know, I think what's most interesting about the thing that you just said is is who we tend to blame that on. Right? So we tend to blame the label. We blame the label for engineering success. We blame uh, you know, the label for doing too much market research rather than looking at the creative process. We don't blame ourselves.
1: Well, we should blame the academics for coming up with the technology. Oh, like, I'm, not, I'm just a yeah. listener. I'm not going to blame myself. <laughs>
0: well, but, but the problem <laughs> is, you know, when we use technologies that um, that uh, capture our data and learn based on our data, we are both enjoying those experiences, but we're also training those systems to be more addictive. To, to give us things that we're more likely to like. Every time you know we do something that's easy and convenient rather than doing something else, we're essentially reinforcing these things. And so you know I don't think that we're gonna have computers making music uh, that is popular within the next three or four years. but you know if you're a label and your job is to, to make songs that people listen to, why wouldn't you want to try to pick things that more people would like rather than fewer people would like? Sure. And so sure. I think part of that challenge rests with us, right? As the listener, as the user, if we want diverse things, then expressing diverse opinions and showing that we do want a diverse set of stuff. then as long as we are picking and choosing and voting with our feet, there will always be lots of, of different stuff. And also people are different, right? You know, even when, you know, I in a paper show that on average something is true, that doesn't mean that everyone likes that thing all the time. Right there, there's heterogeneity. There are customer segments, um, uh, and so really saying, "Well, why do different people like different things?" um, is really where a lot of the magic lies.
1: So no, uh, I appreciate that point. That's really well said. When when you look uh, at something like Instagram, you know, where do you look for the canary in the coal mine of humanity? Like where, what vector or what magnitude and what direction humanity is moving to? Because when I look at Instagram, I get, I mean, there's, well, I swipe a lot um, because there's all kinds of cool stuff in there. And then an hour goes by, but then I come up and also depressed for humanity because it's at our, it's technology that's devolving us to our basis, you know, instincts. It's, uh, so Um, the the Instagram seems to sort of wash out nuance and quality and it's firemen with their shirts off and puppies, you know, (laughs) collections of, Oh, you're on that. You're on that a feed too. It's great. Isn't it? Uh, I like April. The guy's so good. Um, No, but uh, um, the, the um, so then there's collections of, you know, greatest Simpsons moments. And then there's um, fortune cookie wisdom. If you try hard and surround yourself with good people, you know, then you'll do really well. And the five people you surround yourself, you're the average of that. And if you don't give up uh, when things get hard, then you'll rise to the circumstances and become great and don't care about what other people uh, say about you. By the way, if you're not familiar with Instagram, you now own it. Just replay that over and over and over again. That's all of Instagram. So, but when you look at that, what does it tell you about where culture is heading?
0: I, I want to be, I want to be careful here because yeah. I think. But um, no, don't, don't be careful. It be interesting. Technologies are great tools and they allow yeah. us to do a lot of things, um, but they can also be addictive. Um, uh, and I actually am not, not really on uh, Instagram. I've used Instagram for work a couple of times um, and I've analyzed Instagram data, but personally, I actually don't spend a, a lot of my time there. Um, you know, I think we all have to make the choices that we make. Um, uh, and do things that are enjoyable for us, but we have to recognize whether those things are making us better off or not. There's a you know a good bit of research uh, that um, colleagues and even friend of mine have done showing that social media can be addictive, that social media can make us feel bad about ourselves because everybody's showing only the good sides of our, our life. So is social media useful? Yeah, it gives us lots of information we wouldn't get access to otherwise. I learn about great research and books and ideas by being on social media sometimes. Does it make us feel bad sometimes? it also does that as well. And so, you know, like anything else, tools are are not good or bad. They can be used for good or bad things. I think we each have to decide, well, what is this thing in my life? Is this adding to my happiness? Is this not, you know, you talked about an hour goes by many people do things like set limits. They say, look, I'm going to be on here for 10 minutes, but I'm not going to be on for more than 10 minutes. You know, take a step back and say, is this giving me what I want? Am I getting what I want out of this or not? As long as you're getting what you want out of it, great. Um, But if you're not, um, be careful. That said, it's not new. Tabloids have been around forever, right? People bragging have been around forever. Online allows us to see more people but, bragging but, and allows us to
1: let, Can I, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> Go ahead. But I would just cause also just like a dinosaur pea brain. If I don't, uh, thank you for indulging me, but I want to hold you accountable for a minute, right? Because you're a white, highly educated Wharton professor that consults to Google. Saying, well, you know, you just have to make your own determination and process a decision matrix that is going to be best for the outcome, you know, of you and your family in terms of interacting with technology. But if you go out there in the huddled masses, the, the sort of they don't have that, uh what I would say, meta perspective on themselves. They're go- eating McDonald's and the shit is not good for you. They're their you know head is down in this prone position we do, we have a little boy i want to talk about kids in a minute you know but um you know this is just a thermometer not a phone but uh you know their head is down in this position you know waiting it constantly uh there is not social interaction or health you know communication going on among young kids the parents are giving them the ipad as a pacifier you know so they can talk among themselves or have a moment of peace so there isn't this sort of self determinism that you're ascribing to humanity I think it's uh, uh, um either you're giving people too much credit <laughs> or you're unfairly uh, um, um, you know whatever the cycle, the halo effect, whatever yeah. you know Nobel Prize du jour effect, we can apply to that. but but you know w- what I'm saying, like people don't have these choices that you have about this meta-analysis of their destiny.
0: Uh, let's be careful. so so a few things. So first of all, people do have choices. People always have choices, right? Um, uh, I agree that if you don't have a lot of resources, you have fewer choices. You may not have choices about uh, how to spend your money, you may not be able to buy healthy food all the time uh, and provide for your family in the way that you want. Um, you don't have to be on social media, right? There are things you could, your choices that you can make. We all, we all have opportunities to make choices. I think the challenge, right, and I've thought about this quite a bit uh, in more of a philosophical sense is who's going to step in and and regulate some of these things, right? It's not not just about technology, right? Uh, The same can be said for food. The same can be said for entertainment, right? You look on television. Is is all the stuff on television good, wholesome, valuable entertainment? No, right? Should somebody come in and regulate what's on television? I mean, that's a tough question, right? Is is that something we actually want? Well, we want it as long as it's being regulated in the way that we want. Well,
1: there as is, there is If It's being regulated in a way that we there. don't
0: like, well then we're not happy about it, right? We want that yeah. channel that we hate to get off the air, but we want the channel that we like to be the one that everybody has to watch, and so, I think this is a complicated, sticky uh, issue. I don't think it's just about technology. I think it's about human liberty in general. And this is tough, right, when it comes to information, whether it comes to food, whether it comes to entertainment. Um, you know, there is clearly stuff that on average is not great for all of us. Um, uh, but if we want the government to step in and regulate that, we all need to support that and, and actually follow through.
1: Yeah. Well, I can't believe you voted for Trump. That was terrible. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Okay. So, so that is, um, well said, I appreciate that position. Uh, that is, you know, coming down from the, uh, from and on, on I'll, high I'll, I'll or, actually, I'll actually
0: add, I'll actually add something else. Um, yeah. I think what I've learned, um, is that while I am a white man who's had a, a good amount of privilege in his life, I don't get to decide this stuff um no no individual gets to decide it right while we while individuals may feel i may have my own opinion about a certain food or a certain uh, you know website or place or thing or show or whatever it might be nobody gets to decide, right? Whether we think it's good or not as individuals don't matter. It's whether we as a society get together and decide that it's important to to do something. And so again, we've got to vote with our feet. We've got to vote with our votes and we've got to agree to change something. Otherwise it's, it's not going to change. It doesn't matter when any one individual of us may have an opinion, Um, just like anybody else. My opinion is one opinion. It's, it's, it's only more when we get together and decide to change something.
1: There is one domain where you do get to decide. Because in my household, this is what I tell my son: I brought you into this world; I can take <laughs> you out. <laughs> so I have a seven-year-old. I, you have some young kids. I, I do, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so you know, we fight with this. Uh, how old are How old are your kids? Uh, eighteen months and and four years old. Four years. So four years, um, eighteen months. If I remember, it's just kind of n- not much difficulty there. Just sort of moving out of sea cucumber mode. Uh, and turning into a person, but the four-year-old then, you know, is wanting things uh, as they get to six. So you're not quite there where they want the phone. Um, not just because you've, you know, they've seen it outside of the house. So Pokemon, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, like we restrict our son from screen time, but he also gets screen time. Like it's unrestrictable. And, and so how do you think as your kids growing up, How do you think about the compromise that you said, like, hey, there's good information on it, Uh, uh, you know, on the phone? Like, we'd love to show our kid, you know, what an he would never know how an octopus lives its life. He would never see, you know, a comet or a Russian icebreaker or really, you know, think think about something and then immediately be able to explore it. Research it, get Wikipedia on it, and decide if you want to become more involved. If you think about when you and I were kids, like we're like, hey, I wonder what it's like to be a fireman. And you're like, I'm not going to fucking go down to the library right now and figure that out. So I'll just pass on that subject and go play baseball, right? But these guys go, I wonder what it's like to be a fireman, right? Or I wonder what it's like to be an astronaut, and and so the phone has good in it, as you said, right? But um, you know, if you look away, you know, you can come back and also. So how? Are you going to weigh these decisions for the people that you control, you know, which is your family as as the kid wants screen time?
0: Uh, so first of all, I I, uh, I wished control. I don't wish, but uh, control is not a word I would. I, I, I get the opportunity to use shape, maybe direct, right. encourage, maybe uh, control. Far far from it. He has a lot of opinions uh, and is not always interested in mine. Um, consistent with the idea of reactants that we talked about uh, at the, at the beginning, but you know. I try to think very carefully about how I interact with my own uh, technology devices, and when I'm using them, and what I'm using them for, and whether they're making me happy. Um, and, and we do the same thing with our with our kids, right? Um, uh, you know, they, they don't have devices, they don't use devices. That doesn't mean we as a family don't sometimes use them to look up useful information. I, I agree with everything you said. It's a powerful tool, and we can learn a lot from those things. Do eagles live uh, in certain states of the United States? I don't know the answer to that question. Thank goodness that I can look online uh, and, and find that out. Or what does you know this type of animal look like? Or what does this type of animal eat? You know, we have amazing information at our at our fingertips. And I think that's really the power of, uh, of technology. Um, I think as we've talked about, we also have to be aware of the downsides of, of those things and the things we can miss, miss out on. I think, you know, often, um, I'll say this as an adult for myself, often we go into our device with a particular goal in mind uh, and an hour later we've lost sight of that goal and we've lost sight of an hour of our time. That doesn't mean that we wouldn't enjoy 15 minutes of it or 30 minutes of it, but sometimes we um, lose sight of other things, as many experiences can be all-encompassing. And so I think we need, we need to be careful. We need to think about how we use these things and be purposeful in, in the way we do it, just like television, just like with food, just like with anything else in our, in our lives.
1: Well, um, no, that's again another thing. Well said, and I just see here on the comments, uh, Jonah are eleven, Ornclaff two. Hey, we're not keeping score here. All right, come on, It's just an I don't interview. know we're keeping score on, but uh, <laughs> I'm glad to hear I have eleven.
0: I'll work my way to twelve,
1: <laughs> uh, and and you can only go to ten anyway, oh. <laughs> guys. But, but I want you to keep this so you can play it back two years from now when you're it's your son who's four. Yes. Yeah. So. Uh, just you know, where you say, you know we, we uh guide him oh, hey, and, but just be very um, clear. I'm yeah. not saying this is gonna be easy. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I am. I am. And sorry. Even if I am, I will be
0: wrong. Right. This will not be easy. This will not be a walk in the park. But you know, we have some friends uh, who talk about. You know, at a certain time of night, they turn off the Wi-Fi. Um, oh, yeah. uh, and you know, like, and the the code changes at a certain time of night, and so then you're you're on your own, and um, unless you have a device that's also a phone, and you know, we have other people that use um, not smart devices, right? We have a, a great neighbor that has uh, their child has something on their wrist where if they ever need to call mom and dad, they can, but otherwise it doesn't do anything else, and so you know. Do we need to think strong about those things? Is it complicated? Yeah, it's complicated, um, but there is opportunity to take other paths
1: if we want them. So the other thing you can do, and not a lot of people take this option, uh, and it's an extreme route, and it takes just like a lot of discipline and effort and money. But you can also have a great kid. <laughs> yes. Okay. So wait, I remember I'm, I'm when working our, on that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing my uh, best. Uh, you know, we have we have, a, we have a, you know, invest in your kid and turn him into a great person. And then he understands, even though they're compelled to do the screen time. Uh, I, I remember we were at a restaurant and there was a, a couple looked like they were uh, they, they were so Google eyed with each other. They looked like they were going to propose to each other and they were playing with our son and everything. And I was like, hey, I just want you to understand, like, this is false advertising. This is not the kid you're going to get in your shitty life. This is no, but um, the kids kids are unpredictable. You can get a, you can get a. We we got a great kid, and he controls the screen time. But so, for example, um, uh, we have a good kid, and I have him racing. He races go karts. He's you know oh. seven years old. Drives around at seventy miles an hour in a car, right? And and so, when the stakes go up in life, especially with your family, like we do have to. I have to exert control. Over that environment because the stakes are so high. The things that a seven-year-old that de- self-determines are safe and interesting and desirable to do in a car that goes seventy miles an hour. You know he do- he just doesn't have the experience. So so you do have to set very firm controlling boundaries um, and because so so there when the stakes go up in life in any situation uh, you do need to exert more control and you can do less to shape, you know, as using your language. So, so, you know, as you get into business, um, when the stakes come up, you, uh, yes, you want to guide, you want to shape, you want to advise, you want to contribute, but you know, if it's a, if it's a million dollar account, um, we, 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 we recognize the stakes and want to instinctively be more controlling and exert more, uh, effort into the, you know, control and getting the win. So, um, the, I guess where I wanted around the corner is something that I read in, uh, in catalyst, uh, um, surface, the cost of inaction. Yeah. Surface the cost of inaction. So if you could describe it and then I can yell at you for a bit and then you can defend <laughs> your position and then you can say, thank God, this was only an hour and <laughs> the full scheduled three hours did not happen. <laughs>
0: Uh, I'll talk about this quickly because I think we only have a couple minutes left and I want to make sure to take any, any more questions if you have them. But I, I think the basic idea is anytime we're trying to get people to change, they're switching costs, right? Those costs can be money if I am buying yeah. a new phone or new new car. They can be time and effort if I'm switching systems, if I have to learn a new process, a new way of doing things. Anytime we're asking people to change their costs, not only are there costs, which people hate, but costs are often upfront and benefits are often later. Yes, the new phone, car, software, system idea might be better, but I'm not going to find out until I invest all the things to change. And only then will I get the benefits. And by the way, not only are the benefits later and the costs earlier, but the benefits are uncertain and the costs are certain. I know it's gonna cost at least this much to change things and maybe there'll be a better benefit on the other end, but I'm not sure. And so this cost benefit timing up stymies action. Why am I gonna change? What I'm doing already seems pretty good, right? Why am I gonna take a risk and do something new even when it might be better, but it also might not be better and it might be quite costly. And so this stymies action, we tend to think of the status quo, what we're doing already, as safe. We tend to see new things uh, as risky. But one important thing to point out is that status quo isn't always safe, right? Uh, sticking with what we're doing isn't always the safest way to go. I teach a, a case, actually, at the, at the Wharton School uh, on a beer company that's uh, thinking about, you know, introducing a new line of beer, and they're worried it'll cannibalize their old line. Um, and they're thinking about introducing a new line, though, because year on year, they're losing 2% of sales. And 2% isn't a lot, but if they do nothing for a few years, it's going to start to be a lot. And so we often think doing nothing is safe. The safest thing is not to change, but actually doing nothing can be quite, quite costly. And so the idea of surfacing the cost of an action is just to make people realize that doing nothing isn't as safe as it as it might feel. I'll give you a, a simple and dumb example, and then, then maybe we can wrap up. But I had a cousin. Uh, who was typing his email signature every time he would write his email, right? So he'd type, you know, regards Charles or whatever it might be at the bottom of his e- email. And I said, look, man, you know, it's taking you time to do this each time. And he goes, no, you know, I like it this way. It is what it is. Um, and so finally, I was like, I, I hit on a strategy. I was like, okay, um, how long does it take you uh, to write your email signatures like only five or 10 seconds. And I said, Well, how many emails do you write in a week? And he said, Oh, I don't know, um, you know, 300, 400 emails. And I said, Well, how much time do you spend in a week writing your email signature? And he thought about it for a minute, he sort of did the math, and then he went to Google and typed in how to automate your email signature because at each moment, it took him less time to write it by hand than it did to look it up and do it. So in each moment, it was less costly to stick with the status quo. It was, the status quo was safe. But over the course of time, adding up all those times that you have to do it, the cost of inaction was actually much higher than the cost of action, right? So, and so that's what I did. I tried to highlight that cost. I tried to show them: look, at each emotional moment, it may seem feel like it's safe, but actually, doing what you think is safe is not. It's better to change.
1: So this feeds to me exactly the, and and I agree a hundred percent and it's a well-highlighted point. It feeds to me 100%, again, the Dan Ariely conundrum, which is the stakes are very low in an email signature. So one thing I've discovered when you are, you know, in a room proposing something, you know, in the million, 20 million, whatever the stakes are for you. Stakes are different for everybody. You know, stakes for a four-year-old is different than stakes for a 50-year-old, 55-year-old CEO of an energy company. But when the stakes are high and you surface the cost of inaction for people, it, it's clear that it's self-motivated. Mm. I, I find that when you're in that boardroom and you tell someone, hey, if you don't do anything, this can continue to cost you a million dollars a year. So you're talking yeah. about sophisticated people who understand yeah. risk reward and their downside. And then when you highlight the cost of inaction in high stakes scenarios, I feel like we tend to trigger uh, you know, reactants or self, yeah. a, a self-serving a self messaging. Yeah. So I just wanted to get your reaction to that. Yeah,
0: and, and that is actually one of the big points of the entire book, right? Not telling people something, but encouraging them to get there themselves. Asking the right questions that guide them down a journey that encourage them to realize what you wanted them to realize in the first place, but allowing them to get there themselves makes it less likely they're going to feel like you're trying to persuade them. If you go in a room and you say, hey, you shouldn't stick with your existing strategy because it's costing you a million dollars a year. That's why you should switch. You should buy my thing because it's going to solve your problem. Of course, that seems self-serving. If you go in there instead and you say, hey, um, you know, think about this thing you're using at the moment. What are some of the things you uh, that are good about it and what are some of the downsides? What are those downsides costing you? You know? Uh, Asking them the right questions, encourage them. I didn't tell my friend, hey, uh, my cousin, I didn't tell him, hey, you know, switch your email signature because he pushed back because of the reactance idea we talked about. I asked him questions to encourage him to come to the conclusion by himself. And, and there was some great quote, I forget exactly what it was, but I came across reading the book, which said something like, you know, people never uh, people n- never change other people's minds. You just encourage them to realize it's time to change themselves. And, and so a lot of what you're trying to do is a change agent. is not change someone but encourage them to get to that conclusion themselves. And so guiding them down the right path and shaping that journey so that they get to the right place is really the best and most effective way to to drive action.
1: Well, I think we're 100% in alignment on that. Jonah, I really appreciate you being here, guys. The book is a catalyst. There's a lot in here that we didn't discuss. Uh, thanks for being a good sport. I did try and push you off of dead center, so you just didn't give us. Well, look, you already have videos out there. We don't need to repeat the videos that you already have. And I hope <laughs> today you have something fresh and new and exciting. I hope we didn't make you too uncomfortable. But you're uh, a very intelligent academic, and you know clearly you have asbestos underwear. You could take a little bit of heat. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I I appreciate you being a good sport. Back well, thanks to for having me. Line of the things that you have, what are you going to do now? What does the rest of Jonah Berger's day look like?
0: Oh, wow. I'm actually, I'm uh, filming a documentary about beanie babies and uh, doing some expert witness work and working on a paper. So all, all the fun things that come with academia.
1: Yeah. And uh, you know, Jonah Berger skydiving, um, uh, climbing Mount <laughs> Kilimanjaro, uh, teaching the Navy SEALs how to shoot yeah, and um, uh, fixing the Middle East. So we'll look tomorrow. I'll work <laughs> tomorrow. with you on that tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate okay. you having me. Bye now.
0: Hey, thanks for listening, and be sure to stay tuned for more great content from Oren Claff. If you want to get daily insights and additional assets, go to orenclaffcom slash daily and sign up for a seven-day trial of The Daily Dealmaker. See you next time.